As you probably know, the common Christian vocation for all of us, regardless of our particular vocation, is to become a person of love, in imitation of the one who is love. And so that might sound kind of obvious, but then the question still remains, like, what does that look like? And perhaps more to the point, what's the process to actually accomplish that particular end? Now, to illustrate the point, think about the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, right? So, as you might recall, this lawyer goes up to the Lord and he asks him a really important question. Which commandments is the greatest? Now, just to be clear, when the lawyer poses the Lord this particular question, he's not asking which is the greatest of the Ten Commandments. Rather, the question is which is the greatest of the 613 commandments from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so if you read between the lines, what the lawyer is expecting is the Lord to say something like, of the 613 commandments, I think, for example, the greatest commandment is 523. In which case, the lawyer might say, well, what about 542, and so on and so forth. So the lawyer is expecting sort of this lively back and forth debate, if you will. But instead, the Lord responds by quoting this thing called the Shema, which literally means here. And you find this in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So the Shema basically goes like this. Hear, O Israel, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Now, when quoting the Shema, the Lord does something actually kind of interesting. It's one of those things, like, if you blink, you miss it, right? But basically, you know, just to think it through, rabbis at the time would typically quote passages from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, by saying something like, Thus saith the Lord, right? But the Lord, of course, is the Word of God incarnate. He is God Himself. So He doesn't preface the quote like that. Instead, what He does is that He picks up this one guy from the crowd, again, a single lawyer, engages him in intimate, personal conversation, and says to him directly, You must love. In particular, of course, what He says is, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And you see, in this, the Lord is saying something really interesting about the nature of organized religion. And so in a certain sense, what he's saying is that you must never turn religion into an abstraction. And particularly, you must never reduce organized religion to the minutia of the thing, that you lose sight of the overall goal. So you think, for example, about the very word religion. What, what does religion actually mean? It literally means bind back to, to bind back to. So the whole idea of organized religion is that I'm supposed to engage in this thing in such a way that I bind myself back to the one living and true God to become a person of love in imitation of the one who, of course, is love itself. But again, more to the point, the Lord is suggesting that it's really easy for us to get lost in the details, you know, to get lost in philosophical debate, abstract theological concepts, that we lose sight of the ultimate goal, which again is to become a person of love. Now, just to be clear, the Lord is not saying that the details don't matter, right? So he's not saying, well, forget about, you know, prayer and liturgy and the sacraments and whatnot. What he is suggesting, though, I think, is to adopt a purposeful approach when it comes to engaging in these various religious practices. Again, mindful of the ultimate aim to become a person of love and imitation of the one who is love itself. You know, Bishop Robert Barron has a really great analogy in this regard when he talks about drills in the context of sports. And his whole point is that there are a lot of people who are really good at drills, who are really good at demonstrating particular skills in the context of those drills, who can't quite get to the point where they can actually apply those skills in the context of a game. And of course, the same principle applies when it comes to organized religion. I mean, how many people do we know, even in our own experience, who are really good at doing the various drills associated with organized religion? Like they're really good at going to mass, they're good at saying prayers, they're good at saying really long litanies, for example, but at the same time are jerks are petty, are, are mean even, right? And so they clearly have missed the whole point of religion, which again is to bind us back to the person of God to become like God, to become a person of love. 
So to give you sort of a counterexample in a positive sort of way, think about the practice of Eucharistic adoration. So obviously adoration is a really good thing, but the whole idea is that you must apply yourself to that particular practice in a purposeful, intentional sort of way, again, to become a person of love. So the question is, how do you do that? Well, perhaps I'm going to suggest to think of adoration like this. Adoration has both a diagnostic function, but also a therapeutic function. Right? So certainly, I think we're all aware of the therapeutic function. The, the longer you linger before the Lord in his Eucharistic presence, you become more like the Lord, who of course is love. But it also has a diagnostic function. And the whole idea here is that when we're still, still not just in our bodies, but also still in our minds, still before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, not unlike a vinyl record player which has scratches, if we have certain imperfections in our soul, the Lord will bring these things to our attention. But therein lies the important moment, right? Because when we experience these moments of unrest before the Lord and the Blessed Sacrament, rather than ask the Lord to simply give us peace again, perhaps we might recognize that the Lord is using adoration to serve again a diagnostic function, to reveal to us again the imperfections in our soul, to give us a fighting chance to be converted, to turn back to the Lord, to bind ourselves back to the one living and true God, who again is love itself. Okay, so that's kind of the first part of the gospel. But the second part of the gospel is equally important. So after clarifying that we're called, obviously, to love God above all things, the Lord then turns our attention towards our neighbor. So of course, what he says is, you must love your neighbor as yourself. And you see, in doing this, the Lord is quoting Leviticus chapter 19, but he's doing it with a twist, right? Because in the original quote, that particular line about loving our neighbor as ourselves is preceded by another line, which basically goes like this. You must not take vengeance or hold a grudge against your own people, thereby clarifying that the Old Testament perspective was to look at your neighbor as someone who belonged to your own cult, who belonged to your own people, if you will. You see, what's interesting now is that in the context of the gospel, the Lord makes no such qualification. So he simply says again, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Thereby clarifying that the question of who is my neighbor is not a question for out there, it's a question of me, right? So it's not a question of who is part of the, the, the appropriate class, whether we're talking about culture or ethnicity. The question of who is my neighbor is a question, again, of myself. Am I a person of love in imitation of the one who is love? Okay, now at this point, perhaps I might kind of address a common objection when it comes to this particular gospel. So I think a lot of people look at this gospel, this exhortation to love God and to love our neighbor as being somewhat of a contradiction, right? So the thinking kind of goes like this. If I'm truly called to love the Lord my God with all my hearts, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength, will I have any love left to love my neighbor? Now, on the face of it, that particular objection might seem to have some teeth to it, but in actual practice, there's actually no contradiction. And you see that reflected, for example, in how the Jewish people typically look at the Ten Commandments. So if you look at the Old Testament, um, I don't know if you know this, but basically the Ten Commandments are broken up into two categories. The first three commandments have to do with love of God. The last seven commandments have to do with love of neighbor. And if you look at the Old Testament, the Jewish people put this overwhelming emphasis on the first three commandments as opposed to the latter seven. And the whole point, of course, was not to downplay the importance of love of neighbor, but the idea was that insofar as I love God above all things, I actually love my neighbor better. One final example, and I'll kind of end with this. So the philosopher Aristotle talks very famously about this thing called the transcendent third. So the whole idea behind this concept is basically this. Even though it's kind of okay to have two people who are caught up with each other, right, to be enamored with each other, the better relationships, the best relationships, are ones where two people are not so much caught up in each other, but are totally caught up in something which is bigger and better than both of them.
And obviously, Aristotle predates Christianity, right? So what he was contemplating was something like arts or beauty or history or love of country, if you will. So again, the whole idea is that two friends who are completely caught up with love of country have a purer relationship than two people who are simply caught up in themselves. And that's a really practical and concrete way to illustrate this thing we're talking about today. Love of God and love of neighbor not being competing things, but being complementary things, right? So basically, the whole idea is this. Insofar as I love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength, I become a better neighbor, a better friend, a better husband, a better father, a better mother, a better wife. I become a better person because I become a person of love in imitation of the one who was love itself. And may God bless you all.